Maybe you remember a few weeks ago when we crammed ourselves into this cathedral. We stood much closer than six feet away from one another. And the choir, 60 people lined the aisles, they led us on a company in this beautiful hymn that we just sang again a few minutes ago. Morning glory, starlit sky, soaring music, scholar's truth, flight of swallows, autumn leaves, memory's treasure, grace of youth. When first we sang those words five weeks ago, this hymn of thanksgiving for the open gifts of God, little did I know how poignant and bittersweet it would be to sing them five weeks later in an empty cathedral, isolated and alone, in a time of pandemic and panic and fear. Morning glory, starlit sky, soaring music, scholars' truth, flight of swallows, autumn leaves, memory's treasure, grace of youth, Open are the gifts of God, gifts of love to mind and sense. Hidden is love's agony, love's endeavor, love's expense. That hymn has been rattling around in my brain all week long. We're singing it every Sunday. It's our musical response to the moment of confession and absolution that by ancient church tradition begins the service right off the bat in the season of Lent. We start by confessing, we experience forgiveness, and our response to these 40 days is to sing this hymn of praise. Open are the gifts of God, morning glory, starlit sky. This is what forgiveness looks like, we say. This is what beauty sounds like. This is what grace feels like. And these days, maybe, we need a reminder of what grace feels like more than we ever did. Because I'll be honest, I'm... I'm having kind of a difficult time finding grace these days. Maybe you are too. I'm struggling with my friends' well-meaning attempts to find a silver lining in all of this, to mine a profoundly desolating shared experience for lessons and learnings. I say this in love, but if one more person sends me an inspirational poem, I'm going to have a meltdown. And yet all week long, these words have been rattling around in my brain, morning glory. Starlit sky, soaring music, scholars' truths, white flight of swallows, autumn leaves, memory's treasure, grace of youth. Open are the gifts of God. The gifts of God, we maintain, remain open, even when everything else is shut down. So we're a people in exile, I think, right now. That's not a new experience. That's actually the, the normative experience of God's people. Most of the Bible, it turns out, was written by people who were living in exile. And one of the earliest images we have of what death and resurrection really look like comes from the prophet Ezekiel, from this prophet who sees a field of dry bones in a vision. And God says to Ezekiel, these bones represent the people. These bones represent the whole household of Israel. They are saying, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. The reason that people are saying that is because they're living in captivity. They're living in exile. They're in Babylon. They've been taken away to a foreign land. Their captors have demanded of them that they entertain them with their old songs, the songs they used to sing back home. How can we, how can we sing the Lord's song, they say, in a foreign land? We're cut off from the land that we love. We left our, our farms, our villages, our homes, our books and animals, our family heirlooms. All of it's gone, right? Morning glory, starlit sky, that is gone. There's no more soaring music. There's no more scholar's truth or flight of swallows or autumn leaves. Our world has shifted. Everything familiar has ended. And there is no going back. 
right? Even, even people say, even if we return to the land that we love, it's going to be different because we are different now. Nothing can be as it used to be. How can we sing God's song in this foreign land, in this new normal? Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are cut off from God. We are cut off from one another. I think in our own way, we can recognize a little bit of what these people are feeling. That, that weirdness that you're feeling, right? The anxiety that, that catches around your throat when you least expect it, that gnawing at your heart, the fear that's lurking around the corner, your inability to catch your breath, the thing that keeps you frantically checking your phone, checking your email or Facebook or Twitter, or whatever, that inability to just sit and breathe, that's not just boredom, right? That's not just... That's not just uh, a, 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 a restlessness. Underneath that restlessness, many of us are feeling a profound discomfort, a dislocation, if you like. That feeling is grief, I think. The thing that we're feeling is grief. Maybe it's grief that something has been lost, grief for a job that has been lost, loved ones who are in peril, a world that is no longer comprehensible or predictable, or maybe it's a kind of anticipatory grief, a deep anxiety, because we fear that the things that we love the most are disappearing before our very eyes. We're, we're grieving a world that we're losing somehow, a world that we know we might never return to, even when things return to what we jejunely call normal. We're people in exile. Right now, our bones are dried up, and we feel cut off. I think there's a kind of power. There's a vital, raw, life-giving power in that grief when we're willing to name it and sit with it honestly. There's something, I think, really worth paying attention in this weird dislocating grief that many people are feeling right now. This is not a moment for easy platitudes. This is not a moment for cheap grace or easy sentimentality. When Mary comes to Jesus in John's gospel, she accuses him, both Mary and Martha do, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus' response to that is not to reassure Mary with platitudes. He doesn't give her any of the, the well-meaning canards that Christians are used to throwing in somebody's face and we're afraid of their grief, right? God never gives you more than you can bear. Your brother is in a better place. I guess God needed another angel up in heaven, right? No. There's no attempt to distract her. There's no attempt to fix her, otherwise deal with Mary's grief at the untimely loss of her beloved brother. The text actually marks this transition moment really sharply. John says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit. And he was deeply moved. Mary's grief has that kind of power. It, it disturbs Jesus. And it moves him. The sort of, the sort of stage manager Jesus, right, the, the miracle worker who comes into the beginning of the story knowing everything that's going to happen, right? The guy who deliberately stayed away so that when he shows up, the miracle will have more impact. All of his tricks, right? All of his solutions, all Jesus' power and divinity, all of that is put to one side for a moment because his beloved friend Mary is grieving hard. And in that moment, her grief unlocks Jesus' own grief. She disturbs him. And Jesus needs to be disturbed in that moment. He needs to be moved. It's almost like there's, it's like there's two Jesuses in this story. There's the all-knowing Son of God who has an answer for everything, one who says things like, Father, I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this for the crowd. And then there's this other Jesus who comes through, even just briefly. You have to kind of hunt and peck a little bit to catch glimpses of him. But he's there underneath the surface, the man, the human being, 
who weeps with his friends, the man who grieves hard the loss of a friend who was like a brother to him, the man who has no answers, no platitudes, no lessons. Instead, he lets these grieving sisters teach him something. I think that's what I love about this moment. Magic Jesus, who has come to Bethany to show God's power, lets the most vulnerable person in the story teach him something about the power of grief. Mary's words are true, and they hit home. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she is not wrong. She calls his bluff. She says, don't use my loss to prove a point. My tears are real, she says. Mary doesn't need a miracle. Mary needs a friend. So Easter is coming. In some ways, it's, it's already here, right? That, that promise is knit through every word of these ancient stories. Resurrection, new life, bone joining to bones, sinew to sinew, all of that promise, all of that joy, that, that vibrancy is pulsating under every word, every miracle waiting to break through. But you don't get to resurrection by jumping over somebody's profound grief and beelining it to the finish line. Even at the end of the story, when Lazarus the dead man staggers out his tomb and Jesus calls for him to be unbound, even at the end, embraced by everybody who loved him, Lazarus is silent. There's an old legend that suggests that after he was raised, Lazarus never laughed again. That chills me. Even, even the power of resurrection cannot return everything to the way that it used to be. That's not actually what resurrection means. Not for Lazarus, not for Jesus, not for us. The, the life and breath, the joy that comes back shockingly, abruptly, violently into our, into our bodies, into these dry bones, that resurrection is going to hurt us a little bit. Because resurrection is painful, I think. There is no going back to the way things used to be. And you don't get to resurrection until you face the power of grief. I think that's the brutal lesson that John's gospel is teaching here. Jesus cannot work the miracle until he discovers how to weep with Martha and Mary. He comes close to the anxiety of their tomb and lets himself be disturbed by it. These are disturbing times. There is, there's a reason that Lent lasts for 40 days. 40 days is like that's Bible code. Right? It means it means eternity. It means a forever, an eon, an age. Lent is supposed to feel like it will never end. And this Lent is like the Lentest Lent we've ever Lented. We're still 14 days out from Easter. This year, Easter is going to feel weird. It's going to feel more than ever like Lazarus staggering out of the tomb, rubbing his eyes in astonishment. You brought me back to life for this. Nothing feels the same. This is not the comfort of familiar rituals and well-worn shoes. This is new. This is different. It pinches in unexpected places. There will come a day when I'll look out over this cathedral and I will not see hundreds of empty pews. I'll see you again. I'll see people again. There'll be flowers on this altar. There'll be a, a brass band and timpani and God loved the hats. I miss the hats so much. It will be Easter Sunday at Trinity in all its glory. That day will come and we will not be the same people that we were five weeks ago at the beginning of Lent this year when first we sang about morning glory and starlit skies. Maybe we'll be a little bit more like Lazarus. Maybe we'll be like Mary and Martha, people who have allowed ourselves to be changed, to be transformed, to be disturbed by the fear and the uncertainty and the grief that we're experiencing all around us, people who have allowed ourselves to weep for a moment. Because weeping is not just crying, right? Weeping is not any old tears. Weeping 
it seems to me, is grief that has been humanized, grief that has been disturbed, because weeping comes from a profound place of love. Love that gives, as the hymn says. Love that gives evermore, gives with zeal, with eager hands, spares not, keeps not, all outpours, ventures all, its all extends. Weeping empties you. It exhausts you. It's the power of love that gushes from bodies that are part of this much bigger body. And when we learn how to weep and how to be disturbed, we empty ourselves in preparation for the resurrection that is to come. So my commitment to you as your pastor, as your priest, is to resist the temptation to offer you thin hope and easy grace, a quick and sloppy hallmark version of solace and comfort that will serve only to dry your tears for a moment and distract you from the anxiety and the grief. You're going to have to go somewhere else for that. God knows there's a lot of places to get it right now. What the Word of God has for us this morning is something different, I think. It's not daffodils. It's bones, right? We have this desert wasteland of corpses and carrion. We have a tomb and a funeral procession, weeping sisters, and and an almighty savior who lets his friends teach him what it means to love another human being. And there remains at the center of the story this question, this aching question that God asks Ezekiel, mortal, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Because God is asking a really weird thing of the prophet. God says, prophesy to the bones. Speak to the bones. Speak to the dead ones. Speak to the desolation, speak to the anguish and the fear, the grieving and despairing. Prophesy to the bones, prophesy to the tombs. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and will cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you shall live. I am about to open your graves, O bones. I am about to bring you up out of your graves, O my people. See, even now I am putting my spirit within you. I will place you on your own soil. And then you shall know, then you shall know that I, the Lord God, I, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, you shall know I have spoken and I will act. So hear the word of the Lord, you dry bones in exile. The gifts of God are open. They are open still.